Force rains hell on Ganymede, and now they're treating us as if we were the criminals. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week we're joined by Wes Chatham, who plays Amos on the show. We talk about how Wes plays the character, research scandals and the need for ethics in science, and which version of Blade Runner is best, among other topics. In this week's episode of The Expanse, our gang needs to get to Ganymede, but the Rossi is a little too obvious. Holden and Amos commandeer a belt of frigate, the Weeping Somnambulist. Weeping Somnambulist. I like that. If I have to board one more ship named after some kid or girl who got left behind after a magic weekend on Titan, I might just shoot some people for a general lack of creativity. However, things deteriorate for the Somnambulist's owners when the local cops on Ganymede decide to alter the terms of their bargain, taking all of the relief supplies instead of a smaller cut. But these supplies, they're desperately needed. Yeah, by us. See, this time, we're taking all of the cargo and the ship. It's a tough life out there among the asteroids. Bobby Draper finally gets to ride a dropship down Earth's gravity well, but it isn't the ride she always pictured. The Martians are visiting Manhattan to attend the peace conference. There's obviously little good faith between the two delegations and plenty of posturing on both sides. It's nice to be having an actual conversation instead of trading recordings for once. It would have been even nicer if you had met us halfway. Much to Gunny Draper's disgust, the Martians offer to accept responsibility for causing the Battle of Ganymede to kick off, offering up the late Private Travis as a scapegoat. According to our investigation, it was Private Richard Travis that fired the first shot. But Avasarala isn't buying it. This young man is a perfect scapegoat, almost purpose-built. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Christian. And even though she was told to keep quiet, Draper spills the beans about the man without the pressure suit. So you were fired upon. No, he, he was trying to kill the enemy. I didn't even know what it was. Nobody did. He wasn't wearing a vac suit. Sergeant Draper has... The show does a good job this week of conveying just how alien Earth is to the Martians. Bright sunlight, oppressive gravity, and vast horizons would surely be disconcerting to someone used to life in the subterranean tunnels of Mars. It also gives you a good idea of just how much contempt the Martians feel for Earth, filled with disgust at a civilization they think has squandered its resources and lies around in idle poverty. Did you know that the majority of people on Earth don't have jobs? They don't work at all. They live on basic assistance, which the government provides. Oh, and I hope no one forgot about the protomolecule down on Venus. The massive impact of crashing Eros Station into the planet didn't destroy it, and neither have surface temperatures above 700 Kelvin or an atmosphere of dense sulfuric acid. As readers of the books know all too well, the protomolecule is about to change everything. What do you think Eros left behind on Venus? Little grey humanoids with big black eyes who've come to turn us into food? And happily, we'll get to see that next book on screen, because Sci-Fi has renewed the expanse for a third season. But now, let's speak to Wes. Hey, Jonathan, how you doing? Good, thanks. We're obviously huge fans of The Expanse here. We're devoting an entire series of podcasts to it. But I heard that you were a fan of the books before you actually got cast in the show. Correct. Tell us that story. Well, I was at Comic-Con a few years ago, and I was there for uh, something else. I was there for The Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ran into a friend of mine. I, I think James S.A. Corey might have had a booth or something there for the books. And he uh, he started asking me if I'd read the Expanse series yet. And I said no. And he told me about it. And he's a good buddy of mine. And we go see a lot of films. And we have a lot of taste, similar taste. So I, I ended up going home and buying the first book. And I was about a quarter of the way through it when I got this pilot. Meanwhile, I, you know, as I'm reading the book, Amos is definitely my favorite character in the book. So I was really kind of drawn to that. Uh-huh. 
And so I, this pilot came across and uh, they asked me about it. And I said, you know, they're doing this pilot called The Expanse. And I said, I'm reading that book right now. I'm reading that uh, The Caliban's War from the series. And so uh, I ended up reading the pilot and I thought it was great. It really focused on the things that I thought was interesting about the book. Mm-hmm. And then immediately I went and read The Churn before I finished the first book, which is Amos's novella. And so that just hooked me and, and I knew it was something I really wanted to do and be a part of. It's really interesting. So I knew you'd read the books, but I didn't realize that Amos kind of was the character that spoke to you most when you were reading them. So that must, yeah, was- must have been great that they came to you for that role. Oh, it was incredible. You know, at first, when I found out about the pilot and I found they were doing it, I was excited about that. And then I remember asking, wait a minute, what role are they thinking about? And they said, uh, Amos. And I said, and I got excited. And I knew that there was, that was something special. You know, I had a good feeling about it from the very beginning. So better than playing Goody Two Shoes Holden. Yeah. <laughs> I think Amos is a little more my style, I guess. <laughs> Have you kept reading the books? You mentioned Caliban's War. You've read The Churn, which is a lot of his backstory. So I guess the reason I ask is I know that um, so my colleague Jay Timmer interviewed some of your castmates a while back. And I know a few of them are not reading any of the books because they want to learn about their characters as the scripts come in. Is, is that your take too? Or, or are you kind of caught up and you know where everything's going? No, I, I like to have kind of the, the macro view, but I don't like to get too far ahead. So Leviathan Wakes was the first one. That was the book that I was reading when I got called. And so what I immediately did is when I, when I got the job is I started powering through it and I read the second book. I think I read the second book while we were in season one mm-hmm. and I started getting a little too far ahead. I started getting too involved in, in, in future storylines and, and it started, I started getting confused. I remember even having notes on set and they were like, wait a minute, no, no, that's the book. <laughs> Cause the book is so similar to the show. Mm-hmm. At, it's kind of hard to, re- wait, wait, did this happen yet? This hasn't happened. I don't know this yet. Okay. So what I ended up do- realizing I need to do is in the off season, read the book that's going to foreshadow the next season. Right. And so, so, so kind of pace it out. I like to be a little bit ahead and I like to kind of pace it out. Does that mean that you have a bit of an inside scoop on some of your characters? So you, your shipmates, so you, you know where they're going before they do. Yeah, well, I did this season, but now uh, I have to get caught up again off season, so I got to read the next book. But yeah, sometimes I do. I do have that overall view. And I don't always recommend working in this way, but mm-hmm. James, I say, Corey, the, Ty and Daniel are so involved, deeply involved with the series, and they're being so uh, faithful to the books as the blueprint mm-hmm. of creating the series that I think it's beneficial to have a knowledge of the books. Right. As you mentioned, you know, Dan and Ty are in the writer's room, and which is unusual, I think, for a TV show of, of this kind. Do you think your interaction with them through the show is kind of informing how Amos's character develops maybe in future books without having read them, obviously? I think so. I think that the alchemy of the Amos they created, and, you know, even the Amos in their books compared to the early Amos that's in the churn, and then the Amos that I've seen that I brought to it, it's all kind of come together and kind of created a, a more specific, clear vision. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, all of us are influencing that. What's interesting about Ty and Daniel, and it doesn't always work like this to have the author so deeply involved in the process, but they're so theatrical and, and they're really good screenwriters as well. And so with this project and with this story, it really makes sense for them to be there. And so, yeah, they're closely involved and I, I speak to them quite often right. about it. So Amos is a complicated character to say the least. What I was curious about is maybe how you've been deciding to play him and did you have to do any kind of research into different personality types that, that informed the way, you know, informed your acting. I did. I'm a big believer in research 
like that. And I like to really understand why someone's doing like what is motivating them? What is that need within them that they're trying to fulfill? And so I went back to make, you know, to really make it simple. And I went back and really focused on the churn as creating Mm -hmm. the foundation of Amos. And I talked to a psychologist and and we sat down and I gave her the book and we went through the psychology of Amos and what that type of upbringing, that type of trauma, how that would impact him, what that would do to him emotionally. Is it fair to say that Amos is a sociopath? I think that it's 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 a lot more complicated than that. Okay. I think that he's not a naturally born sociopath. Mm-hmm. I think that he has been damaged to the point where his emotional circuit board is broken. Right. It still fires in in certain ways. He still there's still complicated ways that he can feel empathy, mm-hmm. but for the most part that's lost. Right. I mean there was some lovely pathos in some of the scenes in the past few episodes, when you were talking to Cortazar, you know, the scientist who had his brain altered, I have to say, I loved that bit in both the novella and also in the show, you know, because I, I have a, a former life in, uh, as a scientist and the idea that, you know, to do better science, they removed any capacity of empathy from these scientists. Uh-huh. But I think the scenes between you and Cortazar, um, I mean, well, you could see that Amos, you know, was kind of struggling with the fact that he didn't necessarily want to be like this. What do you think of that as a scientist? I mean, do you, uh, what did you think about that idea? Um, that I mean, I, can- I, so, so I think it's really, I thought it was very interesting. A lot of the stuff that I did, I worked at, at NIH um, for a while in a, in a science policy role. And, and the bit of NIH we were at um, uh-huh. funded a lot of bioethics research. So I was kind of often, you know, I spent a lot of time hanging around bioethicists. Uh-huh. And there's in kind of human subjects research, there's a tendency for scientists to think that the bioethicists are basically just there to stop them doing what they want. Um, they call yeah. it the LC police, which is for ethical, legal, social implications of research. So you'd often right. hear comments from some scientists about, oh, well, the LC police won't let us do X or they won't let us do Y. And obviously, right. you know, this is at the far other end of the scale where it's, you know, you don't care about any of the, you know, they're not participants, they're, they're research subjects and you don't care about, you know, what they have to do. It's, you know, you want to find out the, the answers to your scientific questions. I mean, I don't think it's a model we'd ever want to emulate. I think there've been, you know, there've been some scandals in the past, I think, where people have had that attitude. Uh, which yeah, is why we have the research protections we do now. I wonder if there was somebody that was really gifted and had it in, in their abilities, but also had a lack of in- empathy. Once somebody in history that kind of came up and, and like achieved something great in science. The two big cases I can think of are, I mean, there was a Tuskegee study where scientists yes. kind of knowingly let people be infected with syphilis and then uh-huh. and then a similar study in Guatemala those two come to mind. Now, what do you think, is it a group kind of think that kind of led people into that? Because there had to be, uh, if there's a group of people that are involved and the Tuskegee thing was was a big organization, mm-hmm. how could people justify that? Or how could uh, that? That's a great question. I, I think attitudes were different then. And I think honestly, maybe they thought that the ends justified the means. Yeah. And there was something, the, the ambition and the need to do this is, is kind of overwhelmed their mm-hmm. empathy for another human being, which right. is interesting. But I, I think Cortazar is, I think he's a fascinating element in the story. And in a way, he's kind of, he's the other end of the spectrum than, say, Holden is. And Amos is, stu- is, is somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And Amos has always strived to, 
if you're growing up and you realize that you're different and you're having these things and you can't really connect like other kids connect and you can't play like other kids play. And there's other things that psychologists brought up that could be going on with him. And I'm kind of, I'm diving into them too. There's other spectrums of things that ill equips him to deal with the sort of trauma that he did. Right. One of my Sorry. colleagues actually wondered whether or not he might be slightly autistic. That's very observant. That is a behavior that I've studied and included a part of the creation of him. So that's very smart of your comments right. because there are uh, there is a certain kind of influence, a certain kind of behaviors that I that I do uh, in incorporating him to help kind of give a weight to me, you know, or give a foundation to build a, a certain behavior, and and those are certain things that I started really kind of going into and studying to kind of start to create that. So if somebody does have those tendencies or, or is kind of on the spectrum of that, they're more ill-equipped to deal with the trauma that Amos went through. And in trying to deal with that, their coping mechanisms will look different than somebody that was a normal, well-adjusted human being. Right. That makes sense. Is it possible to do kind of research in, into the other bits of the roles? I mean, you know, of, given that this is set, you know, a couple of hundred years in the future and everyone's out in space, does that make preparing for those kind of things a bit more difficult? Well, no, because if you read Shakespeare and, you know, you read plays that are happening today and you think the human condition and people's motivations and ambitions and lust for power and all of those things, the human condition is pretty much is always the same. It's always constant. And so once you start to kind of really, you know, that's always should be your first thing that you dive into and you start to get hooks into those emotional motivations and journeys and paths. And then you start to expand upon now what does that look like in these circumstances? 150 years in the future with this type of technology and these are the kind of powers in play and and what does that look like for instance i'm a late comer but i just uh, listened to the hamilton the the musical hamilton mm -hmm. and, fantastic I, and i soundtrack fantastic and i and i recently went i just read the uh the biography of alexander hamilton and you see what they're struggling in terms of create you know in in terms of power and creating the constitution and the way that it, it's all the same. It's all the same tactic. It's all the same. And, fr um, and frighteningly relevant to what's going on today. Frighteningly relevant. Yes. I mean, and what I thought the musical was so brilliant about the musical when it captures so well, and this is, you know, what the expanse is, is doing as well is that the musical really captures what is motivating each individual. Mm -hmm. What is the, the core of their trying to achieve? What is their weaknesses? What is their needs? What is the things that they're most afraid of? And it's, since it's musical, it was kind of on a, it's on an emotional level and, it, and on, on a basic level and it captures these things because that's the river that's running through that all these other elaborate actions are, are happening on top of. And so that condition that it happened, you know, it's, it's constant throughout history. Something else I was curious about is, is maybe whether, kind of how your background maybe in the military informed your role. And, and something we were also curious about was maybe how, how you feel about the way that the Martian military is being portrayed in the show. So, yeah, I mean, I think, the, you know, the military was, it was an important experience in my life and, and it informs everything I do in, in a lot of ways. And I think with the Martian military, for me, what, what I think is important is that this Martian group or these special forces of Martian military they've never seen combat. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain kind of, they are not a seasoned troop that have been through wars, been through battles, 
and have that kind of camaraderie or that kind of maturity or weight that kind of comes through that. You definitely see that with Bobby Draper in the way that she's kind of itching for a fight. Yes. Uh, which I don't think she would be, you know, if she'd actually seen combat. Exactly right. So that, to me, that what I feel is that, you know, th- th- it's accurate in that way because if people have been training to fight most of their lives. They have an inflated view of their abilities. Mm-hmm. They haven't ever been broken. So they feel there's an invincibility to youth. So, I, you know, you see these guys and they're young, they're snot-nosed, and they, they talk big. They have this bravado because they haven't been hammered yet. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, realized that when, when somebody really gets a taste of war, it's not something that you would ever long for. It's not something that you would want for. And that's what, what's interesting now is what Bobby's went through and, and seeing how the attitude that she had at the beginning, how much has changed now. Right. And what she thought she was and what she thought she was fighting for, it's all been mixed up. It's all chaos now. And she's trying to find her bearings. Right. Do you have a favorite moment or a scene from the past season? Or last season, if last season last season was a standout too? Well, with, as soon as you said favorite see, scene, immediately what came to my head is I love the scene. Fred Johnson, the girl that works. Cara uh, G, drummer. Cara, yes. Cara, incredible actress. So when she gets shot in the stomach. Mm-hmm. She's on the ground and, you know, they let the oxygen come and then they come to help her up and she pushes him away. She takes out her gun and walks up and shoots Yep. two of the OPA right in the face. Uh, That's cold. That was cold. And it shows her strength and it shows her her survivalness and her scrappiness. And it's the it embodies the whole attitude of belters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that's my favorite moment of the of the of the season. I enjoyed that too. And it, because the week before, you have the scenes where she's meeting with Anderson Dawes, which kind uh-huh. of, which leads you to think, you know, well, does she have divided loyalties? Is she really on Fred's side, you know, or is she gonna is she gonna split with one of these OPA factions? And I think I think this week that answer was made quite clear. Yeah. Well, what do you think her? What do you think's the future with her? For a while, everyone was trying to work out exactly which character she is. And, you know, is, without getting into spoilers for you or the audience, there's some, um, there's some stuff that happens in some of the later books. Uh-huh. A character who may well be her, who plays a much bigger role. Right. Um, so I think if Drummer does become that character, I think uh-huh. they'll, we'll see some interesting stuff a little bit down the line. That actually brings me to my next question, really, which was, do you envy your castmates who get to speak a lot of Belter? So I'm thinking particularly of, of Cara G or, or Jared Harris. When you're talking about favorite scenes, my you know, the, I thought about Kara, and then I also I think Jared Harris is incredible mm-hmm. in the show. And every time, even if he has a lot of exposition or whatever, he he's really worked so hard on the language that it's beautiful. I, I could um, listen to him speak in Belter all day, and I and I love the fact that his accent is is like a kind of an estuary multicultural London English accent that's yeah, been transplanted it, into space. I mean, it's so amazing what he does with it because there's a certain kind of mysterious, unsettling, rhythmic kind mm-hmm. of sound to his voice and his language and how he communicates. And there's a certain kind of charisma and presence that Anderson Dawes has. Mm-hmm. And you can see his intelligence and how he's figuring things out. And I feel very blessed that we have Jared Harris on the show. And I, and I really love what he's done with Dawes. And I look forward to every time I, when I know he's coming up on the scene. I think he just does such a great thing. So yes, as well as Jared does Belter, I, I, I wish, you know, I get jealous of that. <laughs> they need to write in some, some Belter for Amos. Maybe once he starts spending more time living on, on Tycho. Yeah, maybe yeah, they start, start to kind of rub off on me. <laughs> 
so are you guys filming season three yet? Are you kind of in, in downtime now? So you're, you're waiting to see where that's going. We have not started filming season three yet. No. Right. Having read all the books at the beginning, when the differences showed up between, you know, the plot of the book of the first book and then the plot of the TV show. Um, at first, uh-huh. I found that a little bit unsettling. You know, I was one of those nerds right. raging on Twitter saying, hang on a sec, <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, right. And then James S.A. Corey, you know, because they have a single Twitter account, kind of tweeted yeah. back and said, well, we do that specifically to keep people like you interested. And I, I made my peace with, you know, I, I, I termed it canon shock. And that's the thing that I think this show does really well. And I think, you know, this show, it cares a lot about its fans mm-hmm. and, it, and it knows the kind of how smart they are. There's always little Easter eggs. There's always little shout outs. There's always little secret things that they're doing for the true fans of the show that's been reading the books and kind of they do all these neat things that kind of include and bring them in. I think it's really interesting mm-hmm. because we're all fans. We're all sci-fi fans. We're all and I was a fan of the books. So it's exciting to be a part of it. So what was it that turned you on to sci-fi in the first place? I mean, I love all types of things, but um, I was really into films. But I remember when I was really young in I was walking in the video store and and I was looking at the cover and I saw the cover for Blade Runner Mm -hmm. and I saw Harrison Ford and I don't know if you remember the the poster, but he's like jumping off a car in his jacket and he has his gun out. And I said, wait a minute, Han Solo is doing another futuristic movie. I never even heard of this. Like I didn't even know what it was. And so I got the movie and I became obsessed with that. And then I was obsessed with aliens and I was really started getting into the movies. And it wasn't until later when I started reading that I started reading more sci-fi. Are you looking forward to the Blade Runner sequel? Or do you think that's a property they should have left alone? No, I'm looking forward to it very much so. And uh, Alcon, the, the company behind The Expanse, is also is the ones doing Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. So every second I get, I'm drilling them with questions. But I think I'm excited about the show. Uh, well, what about you? Are you excited that they're doing the movie? Um, for, for Blade Runner, I'll wait and see. Um, yeah. I got burnt with Prometheus. I really, yeah. really, really didn't like Prometheus. And now I'm that, kind of slightly scared of Ridley Scott resurrecting old films. Prometheus hurt me too. That that really did, you know. That, but the thing is, I look at if Denis Villeneuve is like is my favorite director working right now. Mm-hmm. And so if it's going to be in anybody's hands when it's being put in his hands, that makes me excited. Right. And the fact that Harrison Ford's coming back and, and being a part of it, and I'm really interested to see if it's, you know, because Ridley always thought he was a, a droid and Harrison Ford always thought that he was, Decker was human. Mm-hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see like what they end up deciding or what right. they end up going with. But presumably uh, he, he might have to be human. I mean, the, the replicants were only supposed to have, you know, five or six year shelf lives. And if this is set 40 years later. But if he is a Blade Runner, I'm sure that they could do something right. to continue. And also the, it's, li- it's living tissue, correct? Uh, I think so, yes. So it's it's living tissue that they have on them and that tissue is going to age. So even if Decker ends up, you know, becoming a renegade or, or like kind of running away from the whole thing where he can't get revitalize his tissue implants or whatever, then then to see an aging replicant would be interesting, I think. So, you know, obviously there's, I think, five different versions of Blade Runner. Um, uh-huh. Do you have a favorite one? Uh, uh, yes. There, which one? Well, I only know of two versions because okay. the DVD has the director's cut and then the one that I saw when I was a kid that had the voiceover in it. Right. I don't like the voiceover one. I like the one the director's cut and it's longer and there's, there isn't a voice. You know, I think, cause I, I remember and when I was a kid, I didn't really notice that everything I watched it, but I watched it recently cause I got the DVD. And so I started watching the director's cut 
And so I, I kind of lost touch with that, with the voiceover version. And I, I remember, and Ruckert Howard just gives us amazing, you know, the, the tears in the rain and the, the ships of Orion and the rain's coming down. And you realize, you know, and you see and you're like, oh, my, you know, he, he just wants to know what it feels to be human in that moment. It's almost like an Amos kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, I'm in there, I'm swept up. And it's like, oh, my God, this is the greatest science fiction ever. And then it goes to Harrison Ford. And all of a sudden this clunky, like, and in that moment, I knew, and then it explained everything that, you know, and it just threw me out of the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot all about this. I forgot about this thing. Right. I'm with you. I think, I think the director's cut. But I, I remember when it came out on DVD a few years ago, there was one version you could buy that had, I don't know, five different discs. And so it's got, you know, there's, I think one of them's a work print. And then there's, you know, the theatrical release and, and the director's cut. And I think, there's, I think there's one or two other variants on there as well. I don't know whether they changed it slightly for the Japanese market. Or, but no, I'm, I'm with you. I think, the, I think the director's cut without the commentary and without the happy, you know, with the, with the ambiguous ending. Yes. When, when there's just the folded up, paper mache thing in the that Edward James almost where they find that at the end on the floor somewhere on our site uh, a while back one of my colleagues hacked a Teddy Ruxpin to do some voice stuff on it and there's video of, of Teddy Ruxpin reciting Rutger Hauer's oh really um, Rutger Hauer's speech from there so yeah so if you ever want to see Teddy Ruxpin talking about seeing sea beams glitter off the Tannhauser gate uh, check out Ars Technica does it sound like is it Rutger Hauer's voice nope not at all no nope. oh, it's Ruxpin's voice yep oh that's it's, it's, it's extremely creepy that's great. From where the show is going to go from there, you know, as it becomes much more space opera, I'm kind of curious how people who, you know, who started watching thinking it was one thing uh, are going to wrap their heads around where it heads to next. Well, I was about to say to you, you know, if you think you understand the protomolecule at this point, you haven't seen anything yet. And what I, what I really love about the protomolecule is, is and, I, and I've said this before, my favorite element in Game of Thrones is the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. And I love that there's a supernatural element that's coming that nobody is a match for. They're completely overmatched for it. And it puts all of this battle and struggle for – it puts it all in perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you have this – now that we know the existence of this proto-molecule out there – and it's coming. It's almost, it reminds me of like climate change, you know, or, or things that these things that happen that remind you that you are not in control. Mm-hmm. And that just, there is a powerful force that will dominate you. Um, and it puts everything into perspective, but it also carbonates it because when people when this thing is coming, there's a, it's a certain kind of injection of a, of a horror element that carbonates all the other battles and all the other fights and it kind of raises the stakes on everything right and um and so i love i love having this immovable force that's coming that's going to have that people are gonna have to reach to the deepest depths i'm not sure that we even have a sense of where that's really going to go just yet i mean you know there's obviously there's things going down on the surface of venus um Uh something's happening down there but i think that dread maybe i think it probably builds in a it may be the episodes after the ones i've just seen and, you know, you said this Tuskegee experiment. I feel like that there's – it reminds me of some things that are coming mm-hmm. forward. The, the story of Prax and May. Yes. Yes. That's kind of where I was going to go when you, we were talking about uh, ethics and science mm-hmm. and why somebody like Cortazar is necessary to do certain things, you know. So I'm really interested to see how – you know, one of the most interesting things about doing the show is, like, seeing how the fans have processed what happens – for instance, you know, was it Jen or Jennifer? They talk about the autistic thing. Mm-hmm. 
how she picked up on that. You know, and you think that it's a subtle thing, but it's really interesting to see how far ahead the fans are of the show. Mm-hmm. A colleague just sent a note over. Uh, apparently, you guys have been renewed for season three, so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I was wanting to tell you that so bad, but then I, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I don't know if it if might we're not be public yet. Yeah, it might not be public yet. So I'm, I'm glad. To, uh, yeah, so season three. So I'm excited about that. And that means that got to jump on this next book. (laughs) (laughs) This is a couple books off. But the thing I'm maybe most looking forward to with Amos is his story through book five and six. Can I give you a tiny little spoiler? Yes, you can. So involves, so Amos goes back to Earth and spends some time on Earth. So that's exciting. James will say, Corey, and then we'll talk about these things. You know, they will say, so guess what, you know, guess what's coming or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's that's interesting, yeah. He, uh, yeah, Amos has uh, has quite a large role down on Earth in in some of the most recent books, and uh, and I'm waiting with bated breath to see see how that gets translated to the screen. Hopefully, brother, we'll be able to we'll, we'll be doing we'll be nine seasons in, and we get to express all the books. Excellent. Through. I know I'll be watching, and I'm pretty sure everyone who tunes into this podcast will be doing the same. All right, great man. Stay in touch, and let me know how you think. I enjoyed this. Well, too. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.